Let me invite you to go with me back to John chapter 1 this evening. John 1. While you're turning there, I ask you to participate in a little thought exercise with me here for a few moments. I want you to think of a name. You're not going to have to communicate it in any way. Uh, but I want you to think of a name of someone who has just uh, meant a lot to you in life, uh, made an impact in life uh, in some way. Might be a family member, might be a friend, might be a church member, um, might be someone uh, from your life in the past, might be someone from your life presently. Now, this next question is hard. I admit it's one of those questions, at least for me, is hard. I don't like to try to do it, but I'll put you on the spot and let you work through it in your own mind as well. I wonder if you were to use two or three, we'll leave it there, words, um, to describe that person, what they would be, um, to talk about maybe how they've related to you and the difference that they've made, or uh, maybe it's just generally true in their character, but if you were to try to summarize in just a couple simple words, um, you know what stands out to me is this or this, or maybe it's that. Uh, I was thinking uh, in maybe a humorous, less meaningful way, uh, look at resumes from time to time, and uh, people will say, you know, this person is a visionary leader, this is a gifted communicator. Like, okay, maybe that fits the idea, but I'm talking a little more personal and relational than uh, just made up for a resume. I don't know what words you would use. Um, perhaps you have trouble narrowing it down, or perhaps like very quickly they came. When we come back to the text in John 1 this evening and look at Jesus Christ, there are all kinds of biblical words that would be right and appropriate to describe who Jesus is and to begin to glimpse part of all that he is. But I want you to zero in with me this evening on three particular words that the Spirit of God, through the Apostle John, uses to communicate Jesus Christ to us as God. He talks about Him and His glory. He talks about Him as being full of grace. And He talks about Him as being full of truth. They say, here's the pre-existent one from all of eternity past. Here's the Creator here is God himself. Here is the one who brings life. And John says, we saw his glory. To describe the brilliance or the radiance or the worthiness of Jesus to be worshipped. And then he sort of narrows the funnel a little bit, if you will, to say, when we talk about his glory particularly, uh, let's look at his glory as the one who is full of grace and truth. Two characteristics that at times I think we feel the pull between to go, well, you know, I want to show someone kindness or I want to show someone love or I want to show someone grace, but I also need to make sure I stand for the truth. And to go, when we look at Jesus, he perfectly embodies within the glory of God who God is but particularly God's grace and God's truth. We spent time this morning looking at God's grace and the revelation of God, that idea that Jesus is the Word. He's what communicates God to us. 
And secondly, we looked at God's grace in the incarnation of Jesus. The fact that the Word wasn't just a communication of God that uh, kind of existed from all the time, kind of made everything, but was aloof or distant. He was made flesh. He dwelt among us. And that's why we can move on to this third phrase this evening. We beheld His glory. I introduced the point to you this morning, but we want to build it out further as we pick back up in verse 14, that tonight we're going to look at grace in the observation of His glory. Let me reread the text that's our primary focus for today, just chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. It says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. To say, here's how we know the communication of God. It is through his Son, Jesus Christ. So we look at grace and the observation of his glory. Notice with me first, or consider with me first, that his grace was visible. We already said it's an observation, but the text tells us we beheld his glory. It's not just a theoretical discussion of theology. They saw God in human form. They witnessed his glory. They're able to give us eyewitness accounts and go, here's what we saw in what we experienced. And again, John stands out to me because whether it's in the gospel or his first epistle, he's grappling going, we want to tell you about this, this word of life that we saw, that we heard, that our hands have handled. Not only was his glory visible, but his glory was exclusive. You look at that next phrase, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father. What we saw, you couldn't see anywhere else. There is no other fitting representation because no one else has this kind of relationship with the Father. Apart from the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God has not become man. In fact, the verse that we ended with just a moment ago in verse 18 said no one had seen him. And it is only through Jesus that he is declared to us. So we might say that when we look at this phrase, only begotten, that Jesus truly is one of a kind. There is no one else like him. This is not saying, um, well, Jesus later became God, as some religions would teach. He's not saying that the Godhead somehow existed without Jesus at some time. In, in saying he's only begotten to go, he's unique. There is no one else that reveals God's glory like Jesus. So his glory is visible. His glory was exclusive. And third... His glory was complete. I mentioned this morning by way of illustration that sometimes we grapple to find the right word. Um, I encounter that on a weekly basis where we try to you know, outline a text and go, does that fit? Does that fit? Does that fit? That's true at this point. <laughs> to go, his glory was complete. And I say that in light of the next phrase, but admittedly there's probably a better word or maybe we just need multiple words to describe what God tells us next. Because he says, we saw his glory. He's the glorious of the only begotten of the Father. But how does he clarify that glory? 
He says it is full of grace and truth. We've looked at that word full. The time we've encountered it the most was in our study of the book of Colossians. That word for full means we, if you were to add to it, there's no way to add anything else. It's complete. Everything's there. Nothing's lacking. We sometimes talk about it as a cup full, right? The surface tension is right there. So that it's just bubbling over. You add one more drop and it's coming over the sides. To go, it's complete. You can't add anything else. It says, so when we saw the glory of God in Jesus Christ, it was completely full so that nothing else could be added. And what is it full of? Grace and truth. We'll touch both, but again, our focus in this study is on God's grace to us. I don't want to diminish the truth side, but when we look at Jesus, there is nowhere, there is no way to say, you know, there could be a little more of God's favor there. There could be a little more of God's enablement. It is complete. There was no truth lacking. Everything was right. He embodied all that is right and true was thinking of it in light of Colossians 2 in preparation for this evening in Colossians 2 verse 9. Very similar concept, but stated differently. Because in Colossians 2 verse 9, we're told in Him, speaking of in Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. Like, you don't get any more God than Jesus. All the fullness of the Godhead in Jesus. And then there's that one word. It kind of ought to shock us bodily. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Remember what the next verse says? And you, King James, ye, okay, you are complete in him. Like, you have all that you need. Nothing is lacking in you. Like, man, I don't feel that way sometimes. I don't feel like I meet God's standards. No, you have everything you need before God. God looks at you and says, you are completely righteous. Why? Not at all because of you or me, but because of Jesus. I am complete, not in myself, not in my works, not in my efforts. I am complete in Him. And so he tells us, now you walk in him and beware so that anybody doesn't lead you away from him. Don't be led away by philosophy or vain deceit. Like, don't go after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world. Why? Because you have what you need in Christ. John here is introducing Christ to us, saying, here's the word, and when we saw his glory, he was completely full of grace and truth, which is what God has shown to us in Him. What does it look like to see someone full of grace and truth? Like, I want to be careful of like sanctified imagination. So we're going to stay within Scripture. I think we're safe there. Right? But there's a lot of texts we could go to. There's a lot of gospel passages. To go, what, what did, how did Jesus balance grace and truth? For just a few minutes, I want us to spend some time thinking through. You certainly are welcome to turn there. Uh, the authority of Scripture is far more important than anything I say. But I want you to think through in John. How does John present Jesus as this one who is showing God's favor to individuals and to multitudes? 
and then also standing very firmly saying, and here is God's truth. Here is what's right. Here's what needs to be believed. Just a simple attempt at a summary of some of the portraits of Jesus full of grace and truth. You go to John chapter 3, I think you could say it this way, you see grace and truth for the searching. Jesus encounters a religious man at night, right? Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he wants to know more. He wants to understand more. And in spite of his religion, I mean, again, this is a man who is, a, is devout in his Judaism. Yet Jesus is going to tell him the truth, that Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's not enough for man to have simply been born one time. Man must be born again and proceeds to point to the hope that can only be found through himself, through Jesus. We spent much time this morning in John 3, verse 16 to verse 18, so I won't go back there again. But that is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, showing him here's favor, here's grace, but here's truth. I think it stands out even all the more in the very next chapter where you not only see God's grace for the searching in John 3, but you see God's grace and truth for the sinful, John 4. Now again, it's an outline. It's weak, but bear with me. We're all sinners. Nicodemus was a sinner, right? The guy he meets in John 5 is a sinner too, okay? But in John 4, he meets the woman at the well a woman who has been ensnared by sin. But Jesus has gone out of his way to meet her, right? You remember how it's introduced at the beginning of John 4? He must needs go through Samaria. He is going to go where they don't typically go, and he is going to sit down by the well, and he is going to ask for a drink, and the woman is going to say, why are you a Jew asking me? And yet she is going to give him a drink there in John chapter 4. In grace, he's reaching out to her. And as he does, you remember, she does meet his request for water. But as Jesus begins to gauge her, she seeks to hide the truth. Does she not? Go, call your husband. I don't have a husband. You've rightly said. <laughs> and later on, she's going to say, come meet a man who told me all that I was. Right? Because in the midst of her sinfulness, Jesus knows... And he's not running from, he's going to. And he's showing her grace, but upholding the truth. You see his grace for the searching, John 3. His grace and truth for the sinful, John 4. You see his grace and truth for the sufferer in John 5. The lame man, pool of Bethesda. Right? He's there time and time and time again. The idea being somehow, well, if the waters move and he can be put in, there's a hope potentially of healing, but he's not. And Jesus looks at this man. I find it instructive to me that in John 3, John 4, John 5, um, all of them here were focused on individuals. To zoom in and look at Jesus caring for Nicodemus, then this woman, then this man. Come to John 5, what does Jesus do? He heals the man. There's this debate among the religious leaders about what's taken place, and Jesus meets that man later in John 5 in the temple. And what does he tell him? Go your way, and in essence, avoid sin. The religious leaders don't like the fact that he's healed on the Sabbath, but Jesus is going to speak the truth to them 
anyway. In fact, that's kind of an introduction to the conflict that is going to continue to occur chapter after chapter ahead. Grace and truth for the searching, the sinful, the suffering. Come to John 6, summarize it broadly this way. Grace and truth for the selfish. The multitudes have gathered to listen to him, to hear him. They're hungry. He meets their physical need, right? In John 6, he feeds 5,000 people. It's an incredible miracle, right? They go home. Jesus leaves. They find him the next day. Do you remember Jesus, how he indicts them? I know why you're here. You're hungry, right? He's like, you're here because you are hungry for you. He, view, he communicates their selfishness as he points to their, the truth of their need. And yet he's going to point them to an even greater need in John 6. It's the familiar passage where he says, I am the bread of life. Yes, he's met their physical needs, just showing kindness and favor, but he's concerned about their spiritual needs. You go to John 7 and 8, you see grace and truth for the skeptics, because in John 7 and 8 we find more encounters with the religious leaders goes more than just these two chapters. But he's demonstrating grace through miracles, hope through himself, and yet they stand against them, and so he speaks the truth to them. He rebukes them, instructs them, calls them to believe on him. It's one of my favorite sections in the Gospel of John, because you get to the end of John 8, and they're arguing with him, they're clashing with him, and he says those familiar words, before Abraham was, I am, and they're through. Right? They want to kill him. Jesus was that pre-existent one. That's where John began, the beginning. And yet he is communicating, he's doing miracles, demonstrating grace and speaking truth even to the religious leaders. John 9, there's grace and truth for the sightless. He meets a man born blind. He gives him instructions to wash in the pool of Siloam. The man obeys and is healed. That's grace. God going, Let me rescue you from your blindness. John 9 to me is an interesting chapter because there's so much time spent after that debating. How did this happen? Let's go talk to him. Let's go talk to his parents. Let's let the religious leaders evaluate what happened. This can't be good. This happened on the Sabbath. The guy who did this can't possibly be good. It's like he's healed. He's been this way since his birth. And God in his grace, Jesus in his grace has delivered him. Ultimately, they reject the man. And yet Jesus seeks him out, and the man believes on Jesus. Jesus speaks the truth. He's come for judgment. In fact, he'll talk about, uh, he's come that the blind may see, and that the seeing may be blind, because the religious leaders aren't getting it. Quick Portraits and familiar chapters after that, but John 10, you see his grace and truth as the shepherd, or we could say his grace and truth for the sheep. To go, He will say, I am the good shepherd. A shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's come to do differently than the thief. He's come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. We touched John 11 this morning. There's grace and truth for the sorrowful. He's heard that his friend is sick. He delays Memory's correct, four days, right? Lazarus dies in that time frame. He meets Martha grieving. And he speaks truth to Martha. That he is the resurrection and the life. And then he does something that is incredible. A miracle, right? 
but truly a gift of grace, of God's favor on that family, on Lazarus, to raise him to life once more. If you come to John 13, you see his grace and truth as a servant. Again, it's hard to wrap our minds around. I, I, I envision myself thinking a lot like Peter, like, Lord, you're not washing my feet. <laughs> Going, what kindness is this that the Lord, Jesus Christ, would rise from supper, take off his outer cloak, gird himself with a towel, or fill a basin, and begin to wash the disciples' feet? Incredible kindness, and yet done in order to communicate truth. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet. Like, blessed is the one who hears these words and does what he says. He's going to call them to do the same, to say, okay, now I'm giving you this new commandment. It's all taking place in the face of his betrayal, his death, which he foretells at the Last Supper. But this new commandment that they would love others, it's grace and truth as a servant in John 13. Grace and truth through the Spirit, John 14 to 16, to go, he's leaving, but I want my Father to send a comforter. I'm gone, but I don't want to leave you without someone to walk through life with you. I want the comforter to come, that he will guide you into all truth. John 19 and 20 is grace as Savior, where he's unfairly arrested, tried, beaten, crucified, so that he might rise again. For what? for our sins, for our hope, fulfilling the demands of truth, proclaiming truth along the way, but giving such unmerited favor and grace. Come to John 21, you might identify it as grace and truth for the struggling. I told you before, I like John 21. Peter's like, I'm going back to go fishing. Fishes all night, they catch nothing, right? That's my kind of fishing, Okay. And a man tells him, hey, cast your nets on the other side, right? After having fished all night. What's the result? 153 fish. So much so they're really struggling hard to get it to land. Like, that's already grace. A miracle. God's kindness to them. Peter in there realizes the Lord. He's overboard. He's going to go meet Jesus. And yet in Jesus' interaction with Peter, he's very gracious to the one who's denied him three times. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. See, God, or Jesus, is graciously working to speak truth to Peter, to restore Peter, to make Peter useful for ministry. And I love that section where Christ tells Peter, you're going to go where you would not have gone. What is that? And Peter looks around and is like, well, what about these guys? Particularly, what about John? Right? And he's like, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't worry what someone else's calling is. You follow me. I believe Jesus demonstrates grace and truth for the struggling. Again, we're flying really fast and not stopping and parking in any one text that admit there's a strength and weakness to that, but I want to remind you, we have a Savior who in his life showed incredible grace, favor from God, enablement from God, while also speaking the truth at the same time. 
And yet, that isn't just a historical reality of the past. It is a present reality now. We've spent our time today looking at grace in the revelation of God, grace in the incarnation of Jesus, grace in the observation of his glory. Finally, we want to look at grace in his interaction with believers. Grace in his interaction with believers. Through Jesus Christ, God has shown and continues to show us incredible favor and grace. I want to jump ahead to verse 17 for just a few moments. We're going to look at two parts to his grace in interaction with believers. We look at verse 17, which you notice with me, grace in a contrast. Grace in a contrast. He says first, for the law was given by Moses. One of those thoughts again that I think we take for granted because we're so far removed from the regular practice of the Old Testament law. Like we've been reading through some of that in our Bible reading and you're like, man, this, what is he saying here? And how would this work here? And what would this look like? It's so far removed from where we live. Here, he's reminding believers whose life was governed pre-Christ by that law. To say, God gave this to you through Moses. It governed mankind's relationship to God. Right? They meant about Mount Sinai. The glory of God came down there, descended on the mount. Right? So much so that 2 Corinthians 3 tells us when Moses came down, it reminds us, we can read in the Old Testament as well, but 2 Corinthians 3 reminds us, Moses' face was veiled, covered over because of the glory of meeting with God. I mean, that governed their relationship with God as they met there at Sinai to receive this agreement, this covenant, this law. God had to be met on his terms. The law represented his righteousness. To go, here's God's standard for you. In order to uh, meet with God, you need to meet his standard. And what do we learn from that law given by Moses, at least from a New Testament perspective? The law taught them and teaches us that offenses abound. Like, we don't meet that law. In Romans chapter 7, Paul will say in verse 7, I came to know sin because of the law. Yeah, I didn't meet that. I didn't do that. I broke it again. Romans chapter 5, verse 20, a little earlier, said the law entered that the offense might abound. The law just proved, yeah, I'm guilty. I don't meet God's standard. Very familiar, probably the more familiar verse is Galatians 3, verse 24. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was a really good teacher to go, you don't measure up, you don't measure up, you don't measure up, you don't measure up to bring us to justification in Christ by faith. To go, it's not how, it's not how I measure up. It's believing on the one who perfectly fulfilled the law. So we continue looking at John 1.17. We see the same thought in the contrast here to go. The law was given by Moses, but... Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. We take this for granted, I'm telling you, all the time. 2 Corinthians 3, Romans 7, even Matthew 5, going to remind us that God was very good to give us the law. It was kind of God. He could have said, no arrangement, no agreement for me. 
You sinned. You rebelled. Here's judgment. But the law was glorious. 2 Corinthians 3 will particularly say. But we live under a far more exceeding glory. That it's, it's, it's why we struggle in part. Sometimes we struggle because of just simple apathy and neglect and ignorance. But part of the reason that we don't recognize the law is because it's, what we have in Christ is far greater. He says, the law came by Moses, but here's what God gave you in Christ. He gave you grace and truth. This ought to deepen and heighten our understanding of God's love and undeserved favor. What God has given me in Christ, it declares me complete. I mean, even what you see in Christ in terms of the truth side heightens our understanding of God's righteousness. Like, not only did he fulfill all the law, but he reminds us there were standards even higher than the law. We come back to it fairly frequently in Matthew 5, where he goes, you have heard that it hath been said, he gives the law. And he's like, but then I say unto you, and we end up with a higher standard than we started with. That helps, right? Like, when you lean on yourself, like, try this as a parent with your child. Like, I gave you this law since you didn't make it. Let me add, like, three more rules on top. How does that work? Christ comes. He's like, you heard that it was said, but I say, and we go even higher. But Jesus met that standard for you and for me. He is the full expression of grace and truth. So that when we receive him, God says, you're complete in my son, Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came to you through Jesus. This should cause us to worship in humility because of the grace shown to you and me. Within the text, we not only see this grace through a contrast, verse 17, but I want to come back to, secondly, grace is a constant. Started to introduce this this morning. Just want to finish up spending a few moments on it together. Grace is a constant, verse 16. And of his fullness have all we received. Stop and just think about for a moment what we've been talking about. Of his fullness. His fullness that was the glory of God. His fullness that lacked nothing of God's favor was complete. His fullness that was absolutely true. It's of that fullness, what has he given to us? Grace. You know what's amazing when God gives of his fullness? He never runs out. (laughs) There's never a deficiency, right? We could want to do something nice for someone and go, well, let me give you a little bit of my time. My time's limited, your time's limited. We could go to our possessions or our financial resources and go, they're limited. But you know, when it comes to the fullness of God, He's not limited in any way. When it comes to His grace, His favor, His enablement, He's not limited in any way. And God says, through Jesus Christ, what He has shown us is grace. He has revealed God to us. He he became a man. We saw His glory And now mercifully, graciously, he interacts with us so that he gives grace upon grace. Some would say when one grace ends, another begins. And I think that helps us a little bit. But I think the text isn't quite that logical in its succession. 
It's more just the idea of, yes, you had grace. Here's more grace. Whether or not it's run out, here's more grace. Here's more grace. Here's what God has given you. It is just grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Right? Yeah, the analogy pales. Okay? Pales, admittedly. But some of you are connected to those people whose love language is food. Right? And they're like, you know what? Like, I like that with ice cream. Okay? I served my family ice cream yesterday afternoon. It's like, here's some ice cream. Right? Here's more. Here's more. Here's more. I think of it like my grandma. It's like, Grandma, that's enough. Like, I'm good. I don't need any more. And it's almost like it almost feels like offensive to them because they want to give you more. You realize God never shorts you on grace. God always gives you more and more and more and more grace. There are moments in life where you don't see it. You don't feel it. But understand the text of Scripture tells you God gives you grace upon grace upon grace, even in the midst of your sin. A a text that has a very similar thought is Romans chapter 5, where it says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. God keeps it coming over and over and over again. You can just think of it in some of the typical ways that we speak of grace. God gives you saving grace. He gives you sanctifying grace. He gives you sustaining grace. He gives you serving grace. It's like, he's going to give you a grace that rescues you in salvation. He's going to give a grace that changes you in your sanctification. He's going to give a grace that sustains you when you're going through difficult circumstances. He's going to give a grace that enables you to then turn around and love all those around you. God is just saying, here is my favor upon you. Here is my enablement that you need. And so what do you do in the face of such amazing grace? Many applications, I'll leave several of them for the Holy Spirit to work on you individually with. But one, I hope you can walk away from John 1, living confident in belief of God's grace towards you. To God, you have favored me. I don't get that. I don't understand why you favor me. But God, I'm going to believe. And I'm going to live in confidence that your disposition towards me is one of grace. Secondly, I touched this one a few moments ago, but revisit it again. This ought to cause us to live in humble worship. I think for many of us, we take this for granted. Like, well, yeah, of course. God, yeah, God, thank you, for, thank you for your grace for me. Instead of just being astounded that, God, you would show me grace and to live humbly because of the way that God has favored. To go, God, as I go into today, I, I know you said you would give grace, but I need it. And God, so humbly, I'm just going to ask you, you give me what I need. And then third, not just live in confident belief of God's grace, live in humble worship for that grace, but third, live in faithful obedience by that grace. Live in faithful obedience by that grace. To go, God, there are circumstances I did not desire, I can't see the end of, in fact, I just want to run from. But God, you give me what I need. You've given me your son How shall you not with him freely give us all things? To go, God, there's an opportunity to serve, and 
I don't think I can. There's an opportunity to speak, and I, I don't think I can. But God, I, you're pulling at my heart, and I kind of wish you wouldn't. <laughs> but God, you're, you're prompting me that I need to act, that I need to be involved. So God, would you give me grace? Because I'm going to lean on you. And I'm going to live in faithful obedience to you because of that grace. God has shown us incredible kindness and favor through Jesus Christ. Revealing himself to us, allowing him to be in our midst, demonstrating his glory, a glory that shows us here's what grace and truth looks like, and then saying, and of that fullness, we've all received, and grace upon grace. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this text, the way you've challenged my heart, my thinking, in light of your disposition and strength for me. Lord, I pray that you would help each believer here, all of us, to be humbled by your grace this week, to be dependent on your grace, and by that to trust you, to obey you, to demonstrate that same kind of grace as we interact with others. Lord, thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.